TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. From the city of Quartz to San Francisco. Mike Davis in conversation with Tim Redmond. It was with sadness that I received the news that the urban historian Mike Davis died on October 25, 2022, at home in San Diego, in the county his parents reached by hitchhiking during the Great Depression. From meat cutter and truck driver to college student and teacher, editor of the New Left Review and successful author of 20 books, his life and academic career is extraordinary. His 1990 book, City of Quartz, Excavating the Future in Los Angeles, remains an inspiration to all who study and resist the forces that shape the mega cities that are expanding everywhere. I met and recorded Mike Davis in San Francisco in March 2000 when he visited my neighborhood, the Northeast Mission Industrial Zone. We had all been affected by the dot-com boom of 1998 through 2000, driven by the nearby Silicon Valley computer industry. The boom had already raised rents in San Francisco to the highest of any major American city. Official statistics reported seven evictions per day, small businesses, repair shops, mom-and-pop restaurants, and many Spanish-speaking families in San Francisco's Mission District were forced out. We were grateful that Mike Davis had agreed to help fundraise for the San Francisco Anti-Eviction Coalition. Tim Redmond interviewed him. He was then the editor of the San Francisco Bay Guardian. He is part of my introduction to the March 2000 program. A standing room only audience had come to see the man who had taught Los Angelinos to see their city with new eyes. In his book, City of Quartz, he recalls the citrus groves and cooperative farms of the turn of the century that were replaced with unregulated urban growth driven by a Blade Runner style capitalism. Unearthing the forces that now shape cities. Davis says that Los Angeles, San Francisco, and other American cities might share a common future and that we all might share a common strategy to protect the places we need and care for. Mike Davis had come to San Francisco at a very difficult time. A wave of gentrification had begun in 1997. At the same time, a vibrant grassroots movement emerged that uses direct action, political organizing, art and music to oppose the pro-development policies of San Francisco's mayor and city administration. The evicted, soon to be evicted, and those who were determined never to be evicted made up the audience in the conversation you are about to hear. Here is Bay Guardian editor Tim Redmond asking the first question. One of the great stories that I've heard, and I don't really know where it comes from, is a tale that when the first white settlers showed up in the Los Angeles basin and started building settlements there, some Native American groups came down and the, the natives said to them, you can't build a city here, folks, because there's no air and there's no water. 
which seemed kind of simplistic at the time, I imagine, when you know, the people who were just moving in there. But you know, in, in retrospect, it's a really brilliant analysis of what's wrong with LA. There's no air and there's no water. When, if you look at the history of cities, Jane Jacobs has always kind of argued that great cities grow up organically, that they grow up because they're crossroads of civilization, because they happen to be at a place where trails are crossing, where there's a, a place where people can pull over in ships, and that they, they, they grow outward as people settle there and become organic centers of, of civil discourse. And if there's anything you can't say about LA, it's that it's organic. It's a lot of things, but it's certainly not organic. So how did the biggest city on the West Coast become the most screwed up and the one that's the, the least organic? How did we get where we are in LA? Let's take the idea that there's no air, no water, because people in Los Angeles are so deeply alienated from their environment that probably most of us suspect that that's, that's true. Beneath the, uh, the artificial landscape and the lawns and the swimming pools, there's probably a remorseless desert just waiting to come back and you know, gobble us up. But in fact, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, Los Angeles' greatest mineral resource are millions of acres, acre feet of prehistoric water in its water basins. Los Angeles is a classical Mediterranean country. The first Europeans to come to Southern California themselves were Mediterranean. In fact, they were all from Mallorca, the Franciscan fathers. Uh, they loved the place. By their standards, it was well watered, uh, oak savannas everywhere. It was a beautiful country. The Indians seemed to be prosperous. And they weren't too upset when there was an earthquake or a flood or two. Indeed, one of them speculated there were probably you know, volcanoes nearby. The problem started when Anglo-Americans came to Southern California and imported into Southern California a whole series of landscape preconceptions and stereotypes that belong to the kind of odd continuum of nature in northwestern Europe and northeastern United States. And there's, there's nowhere on the surface of the earth where you can cross an ocean and find landscapes and flora uh, is similar as northwestern Europe, northeast United States. It's colder in the United States with bigger waterfalls and so on. But there's enough of a continuum here to support the idea that nature, uh, when it changes, changes in little increments slowly. But all that falls apart when you come to a semi-arid environment or uh, a classic Mediterranean landscape, because nothing here happens slowly uh, in increments. Change is, tends to be concentrated in big events, extreme events, uh, which we've socially constructed as disasters. Nothing is ever the norm or the average, okay? Uh, nothing is rarer in Southern California than average you know, rainfall. We're either in a drought or we're in a, you know, a, a humid period. And Anglo-Americans have always had an incredible difficulty uh, dealing with the landscape that defies its stereotypes, one that's fundamentally nonlinear, as I argue in you know, my book, kind of Walden Pond on LSD. This is, you know, this is big bang country. And this has led to the imposition of ideas and expectations about the landscape that just don't work. Okay? Either it has to be the land of perfect sunshine, or it's an apocalypse theme park. Let's go back, I mean, go back 100 years, and suppose there was some kind of vision of progressive ecological urban planning in the LA basin 100 years ago. And suppose you were in charge, what would we do differently? Well, as I try and point out in the book, there have been in every generation powerful, coherent visions of what we should have done. If you go back 
100 years ago, of course, Southern California was a society uh, capitalized on uh, racism and, you know, and exploitation uh, with an agricultural system that wasn't that different from the deep you know, South. It depended on coercion and, you know, and total segregation. It was a city at war with its unions. But setting all the bad stuff aside for a second, on the other hand, it was a, a spectacular middle-class civilization you know, of garden cities was the first entirely electrified urban region in the United States, the first place where you had agricultural towns, which weren't simply, you know, backwaters, but were modern progressive centers of, of learning and industry. Citrus was really the high-tech industry at the turn of the century, with all kinds of related branches, including uh, hydroelectric power, which was first produced on a large scale, believe it or not, in Southern California. And the key thing is that you had the city set in this matrix of endless orchards and, and farmlands. And as the city began to develop and literally explode with growth in the early 20th century, you had one famous planner or urban designer after another come to Los Angeles and basically say this, the same thing. You have to regulate the market forces that will tear this apart, which will develop all the open space. And the key to any kind of environmental planning, and really also the key eventually to social justice, is to preserve open space as a constraint on development in order to use it to you know, shape the city. So cities had three or four generations of really brilliant plans for green belts. Uh, Los Angeles is the site of one of the most ambitious, in some ways uh, beautiful, New Deal city planning uh, experiments. But they've always been defeated. And the question that needs to be asked is not why uh, Los Angeles isn't my socialist utopia or your, you know, green utopia, but just contrast Los Angeles with the other cities of the Pacific Slope, where I, I realize there's also sprawl and, and congestion in Seattle, Portland, and San Francisco, but in each of these cities, as well as Vancouver, regional environmental movements have won striking victories. You preserve the Bay, you preserve the, uh, the Bay Area hills. Portland's world famous for uh, controlling growth on its, on its fringes and so on. And you have to ask the question, what makes Los Angeles uh, so exceptional in this regard that it has none of these signal environmental uh, victories? And in fact, it has an environmental movement which has never really been regional in scale. It tends to be entirely focused on questions of the Santa Monica Mountains and the Santa Monica Bay. As important as they are, are the amenities that support luxury lifestyles on the west side? Uh, which is why they draw the energy and support. But there's nothing equivalent for the kind of people for open space movement you've had in, in the Bay Area. So that's, that's an, an interesting historical question to ask. Why do you think that is? What's different? Well, for Marxists, I'm going to give you a very peculiar <laughs> answer. I mean, one reason, of course, is the, the American labor movement has never had a politics of urban form or urban design. It's never had an environmental politics. It's never tried to shape cities in a way that makes them more sustainable and simultaneously more just. It simply abdicated the question in, in favor of alliances with whatever huge uh, growth strategy it is, tearing poor people's neighborhoods down to build uh, more high-rises. But probably the really uh, deepest difference between LA and anywhere else is we don't have a ruling class that particularly likes its environment. In, in, in San Francisco, you have this ancient Knob Hill elite 
which had flocked to hear John Muir in the 1880s and 1890s, you know, original chartered members of the Sierra Club, want to ensure their view from Pacific Heights is never despoiled. So you've had elite environmentalists, and likewise in, in all the other cities of the uh, Pacific Slope. In LA, there was a kind of stratum like this, a kind of stratum that hallucinated itself living the lifestyle of imaginary Spanish dons in an ancient feudal California. But they all moved up to Montecito and Santa Barbara, where this uh, charade has continued you know, today. <laughs> LA, LA has always been the kind of ultimate republic of realtors and developers. And this is usually literally true on, on its growth edges. Until last year, for instance, in the Antelope Valley, or what is now more politely called uh, uh, North LA County. I don't want to acknowledge that uh, this is actually part of the Mojave Desert. The two high-growth cities of Palmdale and Lancaster, every single member of both their city councils was a realtor. Uh, LA County supervisors, who are the most powerful local officials in the United States, if not in the world, with constituencies of almost two million uh, residents, making them uh, larger than the vast majority of American senators, receive anywhere from 75 to 90 percent of their campaign contributions from developers. So there's not really a city in the country where you find quite the same continuous untrammeled uh, rule of real estate and development uh, capital. In LA, people will say, oh, you know, the Chandlers did newspapers. Wrong. The Chandlers did real estate, and newspapers were a sideline to that. Or somebody else did steel. Wrong. That was a sideline to doing real estate. Real estate's always been the basic constituent activity of, uh, of Los Angeles elites. You know, if you talk to the boosters in LA and actually in a lot of places in California, they'll say, but what we're facing now is we're victims of our own success. This is such a wonderful state, such a beautiful place to live that everybody wants to move here. And that's why there's 35 million Californians and we have all of these problems of growth. And, you know, it's, it's because it's such a great place and, and such a wonderful environment. And I, I think if you look back, a lot of that is real estate developer hype. A lot of that is people who were building tract houses around LA, putting out the word that this is a great place to come to so that they could sell those houses. But now we got 35 million people and it looks like there'll probably be 40 or 45 million in the next 10 or 15 years. Uh, how did this happen and what, I mean, since we're here now, what are we gonna do about it? Well, first of all, let me say I was, I had Ted Turner's TV crew show up a couple of years ago and they were making some, uh, sinister program and a bunch of installments about overpopulation. And what they were interested in was Southern California flooded by, uh, you know, by immigrants, bursting at its seams, the environment degraded, uh, people crammed into. Uh... So I suggested to them that uh, since they had a lot of money, they rent a helicopter and simply overfly the Coachella Valley. This is the region uh, east of Los Angeles where Palm Springs is. And on one side of the valley, you find hardworking uh, Chicano, Mexican farm worker communities with barely, they're lucky, an acre of park space. On the other side of the valley, you find 99 golf courses in a row and thousands of white guys my age sitting around in golf carts. And the question is, who's using up the state's uh, resources? Whose labor, uh, you know, sustains state? The definitive work, I think, by the way, in terms of the arguments against a Malthusian view of, of California is this brilliant book that appeared about eight years ago by David Hayes Batista and two other Chicano demographers called The Burden of Support. 
And it showed that the real world is exactly the inverse of Pete Wilson's the world, the world that he's portrayed for the last 10 years, where a growing labor force of young Latinos and people of color you know, will be struggling more, with more and more desperation to try and support the claims of unproductive, retired, old white guys uh, you know, like me in a state that's no longer making the same kinds of investment in social infrastructure and, and, and education. I mean, the thing is about California, uh, I'm sure for any strict environmentalist, we're always overpopulated. We were probably overpopulated in the, for deep ecologists in the 1850s. They'd like to see just a thin sprinkling of hunter-gatherers across the, uh, uh, high-tech hunter-gatherers uh, across the, the landscape. But where we've left the rails, of course, is that we've managed in the last you know, decade to destroy the growth machinery that made California the most advanced science-based economy in the whole world. And if you want to put that into just a, almost into a cliche, what that was, it was just the odd fact that in 20th century California, a very strong state labor movement and a very strong middle class progressive movement with a big P, like Teddy Roosevelt's progressive movement, could agree on only one thing and only one thing alone. And this was one area where their interests converged. This was high spending for education. And we built the finest uh, education system uh, in the world. And we were at one point even poised to be the first society in the history of the world to make 14 years of minimum education. This was the master plan back in the 1960s. And what it meant for people like me, whose parents hitchhiked out here during the Depression, is that regardless of that background, white kids in the 1960s could look forward to you know, an economy that was flush with all kinds of traditional high-wage jobs and the almost limitless opportunities of an education system that was free at every level. Now when I teach at places like the Cesar Chavez Center at UCLA, and I look into faces of the smartest, the most wonderful undergraduates I've ever seen, I have to tell them, look, you know, your future is looted in advance or maybe particularly the future for your younger brothers and sisters or your friends who aren't here at UCLA in the post-209 you know, period. Everything's changed. That cornucopia of jobs doesn't exist. Those educational opportunities don't exist. And they don't exist because of some, it's not because of some harsh Darwinian dictator, the tyranny of the world economy. They don't exist because we've systematically and consciously dismantled it in the last 10 or 15 years at exactly the time when we should be increasing the level of investment in the labor force. And I'm talking here just in terms of capitalist rationality, nothing even to do with, with social justice. We've done the opposite and, in a sense, killed the golden goose. The big difference in the political cultures of Southern and Northern California is, to some extent, that's grasped up here. You even have uh, Silicon Valley billionaires you know, who understand the idea of industrial supality, who have some inkling, some theory of the history of California. In Southern California, you have just sheer idiocy. You know, and stupidity. I, but I mean this in, in, in seriously, uh, that you know somehow you're 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 freeing the animal spirits of capitalism by destroying you know the social investments that built California in, into what it was. And nothing, of course, is is more uh, emblematic of that. Nothing is a more malign symptom than the decision over the last decade to spend more money on prisons than on our state uh, universities. And what's kind of interesting is states whose model has been California, like go to North Carolina, 
North Carolina is a smart southern state where everybody sat around for a generation trying to figure out how to be California. Okay? And because of that, they kind of have a theory of California. They don't spend money wildly on prisons. They have something, for instance, called the matrix uh, sentencing system that adjusts the supply of prisoners to the availability of prison cells. They're not about to be driven blindly into you know, overbuilding prisons. And again, it has nothing to do with social justice or the milk of human kindness. It's just competitive economics, but they understand it. And in Southern California, uh, there's not a glimmering of, of this understanding. And the society, in some ways, uh, uh, committing suicide, killing the, gold, you know, the golden goose, and trumpeting that it's simply freeing the, the spirits of the marketplace. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. Um, it wasn't always this way. I mean, California was once a very progressive state. You know, 1934, Upton Sinclair runs for governor on the, as the Democratic candidate with what's probably the most serious socialist reform program that any major candidate for governor in any major states had in a long, long time. Came out of Southern California, came out of LA, the LA area. Uh, the, the state of California for a long time was kind of where a lot of progressive ideas came from. And even when I moved out here in 1980, Jerry Brown was governor, and at least Jerry Brown was Jerry Brown. I mean, it wasn't, he wasn't Upton Sinclair, but at least he was Jerry Brown. What's happened to California in the last 10 or 15 years? And what is it going to take to make this a progressive state again? I mean, you've got a room full of people here who would like to walk out of here tonight and say, what do we do to go back to those days and to make this a progressive state again? Well, I mean, a couple of things. First of all, I mean, the, the absolutely obvious point is that everywhere, suburbanization uh, and the growth and shift of power to edge cities, not just from traditional center cities, but from older suburbs as well, has weakened the integuments of you know, traditional progressive politics. But the second thing is all this has happened on the watch of the Democrats. I mean, the easiest game you can play in California is, is to blame the Republicans for everything. Everything's Pete Wilson's fault or was Duke Majin's fault. Uh, I don't think that's the case. If you want to look for the, the uh, profiles in, in moral cowardness, you look at the Democrats. The Democrats have dominated the legislature for most of our lifetimes. And they've done it with a kind of complicity, which particularly in the Willie Brown years would take the form of, you know, Pete Wilson says he wants to guess. They interview you know, Willie Brown. Willie Brown says, oh, this is horrible. This is unspeakable. Why don't we guess half? I mean, that's exactly, I mean this, you know, I mean this seriously. This, this is the common currency of politics in Sacramento is the Democrats can always prostrate themselves lower uh, you know, than any Republican, and they have. And it's particularly startling when Billy Brown, like him or not, is by all accounts probably one of the most brilliant politicians uh, we've had in 20th century California, but without a, a shred of moral background. I remember when he came down to... Uh, uh, you, this isn't a San Francisco renaissance. I, I say, okay. <laughs> came down to California for this law enforcement summit about five years ago. And every, every, all the press was chortling how brave Willie was to come in the lion's den with Pete Wilson and all the, all the police chiefs. And he was talking to a few of his press cronies, and they were asking him about Prop 184, three strikes. And he said, this is a disaster for California. It'll bankrupt Cal California. And they said, what are you going to do about it? He said, nothing. I'm going to facilitate its passage through the legislature. You know, you get killed trying to oppose it. I mean, when's the last time any of us have, have actually seen the Democrat fall on their sword for uh, the sake of principle? But having said that, uh, 
California politics are become very interesting in the last five or six years. For one thing, you know, the Bay Area has emerged on a national scale for whatever series of reasons. It's just overwhelmingly the most progressive political constituency in the United States. And not just San Francisco County or Alameda County, you know, stands far, far apart. And of course, one of the ingredients here which really doesn't exist on the same scale anywhere else. It's one of the few places in the United States where you have white men who are progressives, you know, particularly gay men. It's a huge, you know, political difference. But Southern California just, you know, isn't the darkness of, of, of Orange County. In fact, Orange County isn't even still immersed in darkness. Northern Orange County is a, you know, is an increasingly blue collar and Latino county. And you have this great sleeping dragon of Latino politics beginning to wake up in Southern California. And the big question, and it's the question that's really the future of California, is what direction will it take? What will it mean? And having had the honor of teaching for three or four years at UCLA in this Cesar Chavez Center, uh, you see just the extraordinary kids who are going to be the new civic intelligentsia of Southern California. The one common denominator, consistent thing, is just their total disillusionment with existing Latino Democratic leadership. Moral zero in California political history had to be, when was it, when Wilson and Cruz Bustamante got into the following conversation. Wilson said, we're going to have to get to the point where we can take 15-year-old mad dogs and execute them as adults. Cruz Bustamante said, although it would hurt me, I mean, it would really grieve me to say this, but there are probably occasions when we should do that to 14-year-olds as well. This is in a political culture where you can't even talk about employment issues or full employment anymore, but you can talk about executing 14-year-olds. So I think there are you know, enormous uh, reservoirs of progressive political energy in this state. But to find real expression, I mean, we're basically going to have to shoot the entire <laughs> present generation. Even though we don't believe in the death penalty, but some or, kind of summary execution. Right? <laughs> you know, or, or do what, you know, what folks in New Mexico have done which is build a really credible third party out of the Latino and parts of the Latino and labor wing of the Democratic Party and out of the, the Green Party. If, if there's ever to be a hope that Democrats uh, begin to act even faintly like liberals again, it's only because there's a third party you know, breathing down their neck. I mean, the, the advantage of a third party getting to the, the, the threshold where, say, it can command 5 10% of the vote would mean that for the, you know, the first time in a generation, the pressures on the Democratic Party are coming from the left and not from the right. That was the urban historian, college teacher, and acclaimed author, Mike Davis. I recorded him in March 2000. He had come to town to support our fundraiser for the San Francisco Anti-Eviction Coalition. I'm rebroadcasting this talk in honor of his work as urban scholar and activist. He died of cancer on October 25, 2022, in his home in San Diego. Among the over 20 books he has written and co-written are The Grit Beneath the Glitter, Tales from the Real Las Vegas, City of Quartz, Excavating the Future in Los Angeles, no one is illegal, fighting racism and state violence at the U.S.-Mexico border. Planet of Slums, 
Urban Involution and the Informal Working Class, Los Angeles and the Imagination of Disaster, and Prisoners of the American Dream. Mike Davis was interviewed by Tim Redmond, founder of 48 Hills, San Francisco's independent daily community news and culture site. This is a TUC Radio archival program from the year 2000. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. Look at the newest programs or the podcast page. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening.